0: Lucia de Lammermoor is undoubtedly one of the most popular operas in the repertoire and has been since its premiere in 1835. Find out why this opera has remained an enduring classic on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.
1: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org.
0: Based on the 1819 novel The Bride of Lammermoor by Sir Walter Scott, this tale of a young woman driven to the brink has enthralled audiences from the very beginning. But why? I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Dr. Mark Pottinger uses Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor as a jumping-off point to take a deeper look at madness, murder, and the supernatural.
2: This is a fantastic work, and um, we're gonna be exploring many different ways uh, it has been interpreted. Um, and really talking from the start, from the timeline of Donizetti and Lucia, looking at how their lives intertwined, and as many of you probably know, you know uh, Donizetti died of uh, mental illness and sort of complications due to neurosyphilis, and which attacked the brain, and um, forcing him to enter into an asylum where he um, eventually was, um, Uh, It was brought to a point where he had to return home, where he died later. And many people saw that mad scene of Lucia knowing that Donizetti is suffering. They saw a lot of those elements. They sort of tried to interpret and project those ideas directly um, when they heard Lucia in terms of the suffering of the composer. So there's a lot of interesting aspects of Lucia in relationship to um, Donizetti. Donizetti wrote over 70 operas, but this work continually we'll be talking about why that is the case. This work, of all the works, continually to is, is put on in every opera house. You know, whenever you look at any opera guide, Donizetti and Lucia is, is always mentioned, right? And so there's something about this work that allows it to be mutable, changeable, to a point where it's always, for every generation, heard over and over and over again. But at its premiere, it was not well received in terms of the mad scene. The mad scene is a thing that people gravitate towards today, but that, during its time, was not well received, and we'll be talking about that, why that was the case. So the main conflict in Lucida Lammermoor*, as many of you know, is centered around a long-standing feud between two families in the Lammermoor Hills of Southern Scotland, and this is around the time of around 1707. Now this is based on Sir Walter Scott's book, as many of you know, a historical novel, as it was defined, and it takes place around the time when the Kingdom of Scotland and the Kingdom of England were coming to unite, and one family, Decided to unite with Scotland and one with England. So, uh, the opposition of union or to stay independent. So, that's sort of at the background of our sort of staging of a historical set. Before the start of Act One, Enrico Ashton has killed the head of the Ravenswood family and now occupies his castle and lands. Forced to live in a run down shack on the edge of his own family estate the last surviving Ravenswood, Egardo, has fallen in love with Lucia after rescuing her from a raging bull. Upon such news, Enrico, uh, from hearing that um, their love is kept a secret, Enrico, the brother, is doubly enraged for not only is Lucia in love with a mortal enemy, but she's also destroying his plans to marry her off to a wealthy benefactor, that's Lord Arturo Bucklow, who will rescue the Ashton family from financial and political ruin. Everything in the opera, therefore, rests upon the actions of Lucia. Everything, she's sort of the centerpiece of everything. What she does or does not do has the consequences for all. In the end, as many of you know, Lucia breaks off her engagement to Edgardo, marries Arturo, kills him on their wedding night, eerily greets her brother and the wedding party in a blood-soaked wedding dress. She sings gleefully of her love for Edgardo and then dies the next day, owing to the damaging effects of acute mental derangement. When Angardo, who has been waiting at the tomb of his forefathers to fight Enrico, hears of Lucia's death and here the wolf's crag. This is actually um, from uh, Sir Walter Scott's um, book, The Bride of Lammermoor, where he describes the scene right on the edge of the hill. And this is where he commits suicide. And this is where actually he was, um, uh, where Enrico was to meet him. When, Ed, when Angardo hears of Lucia's death, he commits suicide, leaving the priest in a chorus of mourners to pray for his soul. So that is sort of a, a, just a rough sketch and almost like just a skeletal sketch of this story. And one of the fascinating things about this story is that it continually is interpreted in many different ways, fleshed out, if you will, from this simple arch- architecture. And it's really about this idea of these war- two warring families. And what's interesting about from this time from 1835 and how it continually is interpreted, we'll be looking at various ways that it's been interpreted. It's leading us to our production of Simon Stone. So this idea of Lucia, and as I mentioned before, sort of, you could see her sort of like a, a Hamlet-like figure. And I think sort of like the archetype of Hamlet um, himself in the story of Hamlet, here we have with Lucia. And note that both of these are from sort of storied ideas of British literature, Shakespeare, of course, and Sir Walter Scott, who is sort of looking towards Shakespeare, I think, in his is, um, is working out of Bride of Lammermore. So Lucia and Hamlet, they both, are guided at the beginning of their stories by a ghost. A familial ghost. A ghost, uh, a relative, who asks for avenge, to be avenged, right? Uh, the sense for revenge. And they both, th- they both kill. And that's one of the things that's what's curious about Lucia is that she's a madwoman or a woman who basically seeks this idea of what this ghost has told her to do, that she, she beckons, as you many of you know from Act 1, the ghost sort of says to her that something has happened and I have been wronged and in a sense you must avenge me. This is similar to what happens to Hamlet at the very beginning of of the play. So what's interesting, so you have Hamlet and Lucia both sort of serving as our our titular characters, sort of defining their roles by these ghosts from from the grave and sort of seeking out their actions. And the people that they kill, Hamlet of course kills Polonius, right? um, From the story of Hamlet, Um, and he's one of the main characters that um, Hamlet sort of, when he kills him, sort of puts everything else in action for revenge. With, Ophelia, with Lucia, of course, she kills Arturo. And so this desire to then try to fix this murder to, in terms of what happens afterwards. The people like Ophelia and Argardo are sort of the, the, um, sort of the individuals who are sort of left to sort of figure out what to do now. They're not in sort of the central roles that they were before. These were the loves. Hamlet, Ophelia, Edgardo Lucia. And what, is, what do they both do? They both commit suicide following the end of, their, of the situation with Lucia and Hamlet. So there's something very fascinating about the idea of a ghost that leads these actions, but also the fact that if, of this idea of the, um, sort of the, um, the consequences of their actions. But we'll see that with Hamlet, Hamlet is a tragedy, mainly because he gives up on his love for Ophelia. He never seeks to basically re- amend that, and basically tries to seek revenge, and that every, is everything that defines his actions. But for Lucia, it's all about love, and that's something we'll be exploring, too, in terms of our um, interpretation of some of the ideas of of exploring in terms of the work. All right, so I just want want to set that up in terms of this idea, this archetype that we're talking about. It's not just something that's unique to Lucia, but there's something um, going on here that speaks directly to ideas, especially of A Hamlet-like figure, this idea of the ghost, and and keep in mind, this is this Italian bel canto opera. You don't have many too too many um, Italian operas in the first half of the 19th century that we have supernatural forces. Often there are forces that are defined by familial realities, and here we have a ghost, a ghost, a relative, who guides her from the start. So there's something very curious with this um, character. So looking at how this has been interpreted times past. There's been many ways of looking at Lucia and sort of from its production, from its early presentation, 1835, she's seen as sort of this pitiful victim of others' actions, sort of the pitiful victim of men's actions all around her. This pitiful um, character, though, she has a glorious end, nonetheless, this sense where this pitiful victim, but her ending, her death, is one that's glorious, especially with this final aria that she has. This mad scene lasts about twenty minutes. This this, inf- this aria that she has, so she has this glorious end climax. But everyone sees her as a victim, so it's kind of a curious way of perceiving our our main character. But this has sort of been an interpretation by many directors from that period on. In fact, in its premiere in eighteen thirty-five, for the first for the first two decades, the mad scene was not what was well received. Actually, people shunned from the mad scene. Even in um, Madame Bovary, um, this work um, by Flaubert, which we have um, Lucia in the center part of that story. She, she's with Lucia, she's going with Lucia, she thinks that this is great, this is exactly what I need for my life, this is where we give me guide, but then this mad scene, she completely refuses it. And this is typical of the 19th century. They thought, they thought the mad scene was something that was completely out of order of what they want to see for this character. What they actually heard and desired to be heard in the salon, and often in the 19th century, when these works were presented, you know, to hear it again, almost like a postcard from from what you've um, experienced already. For the salon, they would take certain selections from it, especially these these, um, publishers and directors at the theater. They would hear what people would applaud. And so from that, they would actually then, that's the work that we want to put in a work for the salon. And it was not the mad scene. It was the love duet from Act One. It was the final aria by Edgardo, his suicide aria. Or it was the sextet. It was not the mad scene. So continually, the mad scene was seen as problematic. Until the late 19th century with someone like Nellie Melba. In 1889, around the time of the World's Fair in Paris, she brought the mad aria, the mad scene, and then started to extend it to make it longer, to make it even more filled with with, uh, trills, with... Virtuosic singing up and down, sort of pyrotechnics with a voice, to showcase what she's about. And still to this day, that's what we have in terms of the Mad Scene. So when it was originally composed by Donizetti, it was short, it was well-defined and well-structural. well defined and well structured. we will be talking more about this and why that was the case. But later on in the ninth century, they felt that she wasn't mad enough. They needed her more to be defined, more virtuosic, more sort of artistic, more sort of exploratory of her ability to showcase to the people that this is a glorious death. And so it begins with Nellie Melba, and here in a, uh, this, this, she's an Australian soprano. Today um, uh, we, we see that Joan Sutherland is uh, someone that we continue to look to, sort of defines that role, bringing what is typically a lyric soprano voice, light filled with lots of um, sense of breath and art- articulation, and sort of fluttering in a sense, give us a sense of someone who is, who's frail but sort of confident in their identity. Here we have a coloratura soprano, someone with such weight in the voice, such ability, such heights and lows, that, that little aria that Donat Seti wrote really won't do. You need something much longer, much more extended, much more rhythmically exciting. And that's what we have still today. So this has become a vehicle, as many of you know, this glorious death, this interpretation, of this pitiful character with this glorious death has become now even more glorious, more spectacular. So we're just going to take a look at this scene with Joan Sutherland. And you'll note with this aria how much it is sort of extended and sort of giving us, once again, that sense of, Glorious death. So, looking at the femme fatale though, the femme fatale is character that that defines uh, the sense where, especially in the late 19th century, a character trope that uh, due to the loss of patriarchal control, uh, seeing these women as sort of destroyers of men's world. They're often seen as unsexed women. Um, These individuals that don't seem to fit within our categories. They were seen as individuals that seem to supersede the role that society has given to them. They kill. They are individuals that define for themselves their own action away from men's control. And so this femme fatale, this fatal woman, by looking at her, you might be entrapped and being destroyed. And this is something the late 19th century especially was seen as uh, problematic, but also something that they try to diagnose. Many scholars actually argue that it's due to technology, the rise of technology in a latter part of the 19th century, and especially how technology was sort of creating this sense of equality among the sexes, allowing women to separate and be more independent from the home, away from being in that salon world, but able to actually define their independence outside. So this idea of women being defined independently from men, this is something seen as sort of reflective of this idea of the femme fatale, where men are being sort of unhorsed. And you see this in the operas, especially in the latter part of the 19th century with Carmen Bizet, the French um, wonderful opera here, um, the opera, um, Lyric Opera, about 1875 when it premiered. And as many of you know, Don José is her victim. But what happens to Carmen in the end? Killed, right? Um, Tosca, here's wonderful opera, of course. By Puccini, 1899, what happens in the end to, she murders, right? Um, so the sense, Salome, 1905, you know what happens to her? You know, she's killed, right, by her uncle because he just can't see the scene where she's kissing the head of John the Baptist. So the, the idea that we find today with the femme fatale finds its way, of course, within um, Lucia. Lucia is the only bel figure that kills. We have in the 19th century so much madness that's happening. You see it in so many, La Sanambula, the like idea of Anna bolena You have all these characters who go mad, but she's the only one who kills. And so this idea of the femme fatale, and so even though in 1835 when this work was done, it continually finds its way to the late 19th century's desire of seeing and uh, perceiving this idea of the femme fatale in these works. It's up to us to decide, is this a moral tale? This is what happens to men, uh, to, to women in the end? All of them must die, right? Uh, but they all have this glorious moment where they're able to kill. And covered in blood is a typical sort of reality that we start to see. And then you also have the idea, a, a sort of a, another sort of interpretation of Lucia, this idea of the ghost bride. This continual sense of a force, a supernatural force that yields our character to the actions that she's taking. Almost as if this, it's already been predestined in terms of what she must do. It's from the grave, it's already been defined. And so this idea of the Ghost Bride is something that we see often in Gothic interpretations. And um, the sense of the Gothic, of course, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Frankenstein this came out in 1818, Bride of Lamar, 1819. There's a lot of sort of elements of this idea of the chaos that the, that the supernatural world brings forth. And how it um, sort of, a, many people argue about the Gothic sublime, the sense where this character, this... This ghost, especially for Lucia, but in, in Mary Shelley's The Frankenstein, is a reflection of some internal reality. Some reflection, almost projection, of that sense where they have yet to defeat within themselves, some vice. And by defeating that ghost, that gothic creature, they're able to be released from it. A sense of an enlightenment now occurs. And w- at the end, she's happy, right? This is one of the only times in the opera where she's truly happy is at the end where basically she finally is able to be with her ghost. She is, as people argue when they first see her, she's like a ghost, she's not even here. She's already entered into that space, that space that's already been defined for her by this gothic ghost bride. It's a love story between two people. And that's, as I mentioned, the tragedy in Hamlet is that he lets go of his love for Ophelia to embrace revenge, which ends of course his life and pretty much everyone else's life. But for Lucia, it's love that guides her, she does because of love, not for revenge. And so this is the thing that we'll be looking at here for the remaining time in our first half here, is to look directly at the idea of how love permeates itself within this work and how the music, looking to the music or listening to the music, we can actually hear this reality being, in, being defined in the work. So we have this wonderful set of various interpretations of the work, which is probably one of the reasons why it still remains in repertoire today. And you can find many houses across the world today still performing this work. So this idea of love is the thing, I think, that really brings forth what we have in this work. So to get to that idea of love, I first wanted to talk a little bit about listening critically. Um, And as a professor of music, it's something I do with all my students. So one of the things, instead of being passive to this, Getting ourselves into the 19th century is essential and one of the ways that uh, for my students and one of the things that I explore in my own research is start with sort of that sound world, that sound world of Don's that he's using. Almost like a, a painter, he wants to grab the certain type of paint that sort of is able to capture that image that you're trying to depict. Same thing in terms of the orchestration and the instrumentation. As we look at the overture to the um, to Lucia, you see, um, um, this is their very opening, which we're about to hear. And you hear the timpani striking away in a very pianissimo, and think of this idea of dynamics. These dynamics are ones that sort of gives a sense almost of space. Where well, you hear something a slight soft echo, you know it's in a far distance away, as opposed to very large in front of you, right? So think of this idea of a sort of spatial reckoning with this idea of dynamics. It starts off pianissimo at the very start. And so the sense of hearing this distant sound. Bring back the idea, and then those who hopefully you have a sense of Hamlet already in your mind. In Hamlet, remember that moment where he returns back and he sees a gravesite, right, and he comes close, he doesn't know who it is, and then he realizes it's who? It's Ophelia, right, it's, 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 it's her gravesite for Ophelia. So it's almost a sense that he's walking into, it's like something's going on here, there's a, there's a funeral march uh, happening, and then when he's there, he's suddenly shocked. It's like, oh my gosh, this is Ophelia. It's the same thing that happens in this overture. It starts off very soft in the sense of th- pounding out these simple rhythms, bum, bum, ba-da-da-da-bum ba da the sense of just, the sense of something happening, something, um, hearing in the distance, and what's also interesting is that he uses these stopped horns, and Berlioz talks about this in his treatise, stopped horns, these are French horns, hunting horns, and stopped horns is putting the, your hand in the bell, creating this very sort of melancholy, shadowy sound, it's something referred to as an umbra or shadow sound, this umbra sound is to try to create the sense of, of a distant sense of shadow, this fear, this sense of mystery mystery being defined he uses these horns in this and then here we have b-flat minor in this world being defined with the sense of clarinets bassoons also the sense of the the french horn creating this idea of this quality this very warm sound you know this is not flute this is not something very low like tuba but this is in this middle range of alto and tenor so it's like someone speaking moaning who's mourning someone's loss so our very beginning of our opera begins with this funeral march in this umbra sound. Using the timpani, this distant sound, there's a funeral march that's happening. And we enter into our scene directly at that point with this sound of the horns, the stopped horns, creating that melancholy, sort of shadowy sound. And like I said, Berlioz talks about this, he loves that sound. It sort of captures, instead of this noble, often we think of the hunting horn, they found the fox or they found that that thing they were looking for, but has this very muted quality. And he, this, Donna said he, um, uh, pointedly tries to represent that in this very slow like tempo. Um, so let's take a listen to it and think of this also as if you're approaching a funeral um, And you're starting to realize who it is for and then suddenly you get a shock You get three sudden shocks and those three sudden shocks are brought in with a crash symbol You know if you wanted to like parse what is a crash symbol, but it's simply you know taking two pieces of metal smacking them together How do we hear those sounds whenever there's a crash right? There's a sense of complete violence. It's not anything that is filled with any sense of order is complete disorder. And that sense often was used within uh, medical science, the sound of the crash symbol. that creates someone in sort of in a a catalepsy or the sense of where they're immediately brought into sort of a mental shock. And we hear that same, the sense of this quiet umbra and then a sudden this idea of the crash symbols. So listen critically to these sounds. Remember the curtain is not up, so all we're hearing is this sound world that comes up from our pit, sort of demonstrates for us sort of this world of associated with the funeral. And so it gives us the foreshadowing that this story of Lucia is not a happy one. And perhaps gives us a sense of what is to come. So think of the orchestra as an omniscient narrator. They're our friend. We can trust the orchestra. When the character on stage is like, oh, I love you. But in the orchestra is like, no, you don't, you don't. And so you, you get a true sense the orchestra details for us. What are we to think? It gives us a sense of what the character is thinking, what's happening in the environment, And also gives us a sense of what the composer is trying to sort of bring together for us to have a sense of what's going into our story. So that's our overture. It's really a really wonderful sort of opening, right? For this, this world, of, and almost like uh, like Romeo and Juliet, Tchaikovsky. It begins with a sense of what we know of them to be, this only in death will love be defined. And so he doesn't choose um, like the contrapassuit, right? Or any instrument that would sort of take away from that alto tenor range and that sense of empathy. You feel a sense, right? Uh, or is it just me, right? You, you feel a, a sense of like compassion, empathy for at this opening start like a funereal sort of march, giving you a sense of sort of this idea that something foreshadowing here, a sense of pain, a sense of of loss and regret. All right, so moving forth in terms of this interpretation of love. And it's really the idea of act one. Act one is central to the entire opera in terms of how we are to see these characters. As many of you know, our opening act gives a sense of who are these characters. It gives a sense of who they are and how they're going to be moving forth within our story. And everything, in a sense, as I mentioned before, rests upon Lucia. And we see her here as we we move forth. We see her here in our um, second scene of of the opera. And there you see sort of a sense of sort of how she defines her own destiny. And she sings at the fountain. Now, this is the fountain on the Ravenswood house, land, estate. And there, there was a Ravenswood who killed an Ashton. And out of jealousy killed that ashton and dumped her body in that fountain at that fountain a relative of lucia and ashton motions to her asking for vengeance so at this particular moment in the opera at the very start like we talk about hamlet she sings of seeing this relative at the fountain note once again that ombra sound and but at the same time it's a very interesting aspect that donizetti sets this scene it's in a, a mixed mode, meaning that it's in both minor, sad, melancholy, fear, terror, but also major, happy, resounding with a sense of hope. So in this love-death, in this world of ghost and the living, this is where Lucia defines her destiny. It's in this aria, this cavatina, this is one of her first ones, known as the fountain aria. And here we have a sense of how this connection between death and love like a Romeo and Juliet, only in death is her love truly realized. Same thing here with Lucia. So she sings of, you know, if, talking about a ghost, uh, you, you would think it'd be someone filled with terror, filled so we'll with fight. But it's happy. You'll note that she changes from the sense of minor to major. She sees in this ghost hope. And once again, listen for how the instrumentation by Donizetti defines this giving us a sense of that ombre sound, but then eventually moves to a sense of major and happy and a sense of once again of hope and perhaps a possibility of finding love for herself. It's wonderful, isn't it, Natalie, to say um, she has Mm -hmm. just a wonderful sort of lightness to her voice and this is that idea of that lyric soprano, not that heavy voice perhaps of a Joan Sutherland but this very light um, quality which Mm -hmm. sort of creates that sense of someone you want to, you know, help her, you want to find a way and she's naive, of course, you know, singing of this love at a fountain where a dead body was discovered and a ghost that appeared only to her. You would think you would not want to approach that fountain but she's this as hope And she sees that this is a sense, that is a sign to me that my love is destined for Edgardo. Following this, of course, she's waiting for Edgardo and remember we mentioned before, Edgardo rescued her and a bull came charging on the land there. And poor Edgardo in that that sorry um, house that he's on his own land. Imagine being kicked off your own land and then you're put in the small little quarters, the shack. And there he sees a bull that's loose, running after Lucia. He saves her and then he looks, he's like, oh my gosh, you're my mortal enemy, but I absolutely love you. And she says the same thing. And so for days upon end, they continue to meet one another. And this is um, the next scene you see is the duet between Edgardo and um, Lucia where they plead, or pledge rather, their love to one another. What we find here at the scene is that Edgardo has been summoned to go to France to find, def- to find um, help for the Scottish um, kingdom to try to find a way for his independence to maybe ally with France. And so he's being sent off to France to perhaps um, serve as um, an ambassador of the Scottish desire for independence away from this desire to bring together this united kingdom here around 1707. And so he tells her that I have to go off. And, but he also wants to find peace between her brother Enrico and, um, you know, and, and his own sense of guilt. He promised that he would not do anything else but avenge his father's death, which was taken by, of course, Edgardo, and now occupies his, vo- his own ancestral home. And so he decides to give that up and just to love Lucia. And first he has to do this mission, and then he'll return. So this is where we pick up. So it's at the end of our, of our um, duet between Edgardo and uh, Lucia. And listen to the, the, what they sing. Basically, before, she says, before you go off, write to me. Write to me and on the murmurs of the, of, of the breeze off the sea, there you'll hear my voice. It's almost to say that connecting once again like the fountain, connecting love with that natural element as if it's around us, that we can feel it, that is part of the, the, of the environment around us. And there you'll get a sense of, of my love for you. And so that particular melody we hear later on, similar with the fountain. So this fountain that we heard, the Cavatina, which she talks about this ghost that she appears to her. Listen, remember that, that melody, because we're going to hear it later, and how it has this idea of reminiscence of that, but how it is then recast. It's a wonderful thing about the orchestra being this omniscient narrator. It goes beyond what the characters can say. It gives us a sense of what they're thinking, the environment, and all the other realities in terms of, that are happening to that character. It's one of the wonderful things to love about the amalgam of opera, as opposed to just spoken theater. You hear all these things. You see it, but also how it relates to the story in terms of the text that you're reading and also the corporal reality, the physical reality being performed. All right, so let's jump to that act um, that, that in here in Act 1 near the end where we have our duet. We I mean, notice at the end where she continues. Yeah. He stops, and then she continues, has like this, this uh, sort of this statement at the end. Why do you think that is? There's a sense of excess, right? There's this like, why does she have to go on like that? And it's that sense of it's just like, remember, you know, write to me. Ardent, my and sighs will be, you know, on the breeze and uh, the sea. And there's a sense that, yes, that, you know, this is means so much to me. And, that, and so Donna said he keeps that note going on when he finishes. So it's a sense that this is so important. And so you get a sense that Lucia has everything riding on this. She's a desperate woman. She wants to do what she feels is right, which is to love this man, even though she knows it's wrong. And so there's a sense, I think, at the end of here, Act 1, that Donizetti is really trying to paint within you. Remember, this is the first time we see Lucia, and it's the first time she's introduced with the, with the, um, with the aria at the, f- at the fountain, and sort of this sense of this duet. You really get a sense of sort of her, her character type, and she's a desperate woman desiring only to love this man even though she had this, this vision of the ghost but once again this ghost, this life, um, this love, death, reality defined by the fountain. I'm going to talk a little bit, a bit about bel canto opera in general and this is a work that's often seen as sort of a paramount or paradigm of the world of bel canto and bel canto has many different definitions and it was really not until the late 19th century that people started to define this as bel canto, this beautifully sung idea um, which is all about the idea of the voice being defined in a sense where this is a fluidity. And so that sense where the voice becomes something more than the, the character themselves. Almost as if the idea that the voice becomes a presence. It's not just the character, almost as if the voice transcends the body. Now, I, I used to sing opera in, in St. Louis. I was a baritone. And I am just going to demonstrate for you just a little bit. And hopefully, my, if you can maybe turn down my microphone just a wee bit um, so you can hear. But just to give you a sense of how the voice eventually just just jumps from the body and that sense of the presence of the voice. And that's what we have, especially here at the end, where you hear in the duet. Maybe a little something from Don Giovanni. <laughs> Yeah, so you get that sense. It's almost as if the voice becomes something. Now, I saw some of you like, "Whoa!" You know, this is this is different. You know, from the speaking voice, and that sense of the bel canto, where the voice becomes celebrated. The sense where it, it almost transcends the body. What's great about what we find here is that what Donizetti does, he allows these characters to be have, to be more dynamic rather than just fixed and and settled within that role. So, some so for example, with uh, we're going to see, uh, especially in Act Two and Act Three, Enrico is someone. You know, set in a way where you see him as this guy who's not going to waver. But we see at the end he becomes more and l- it becomes less of that basso profundo and more of almost like this lyric tenor, sort of saying, "Oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? What have I created?" And he doesn't set he doesn't set the voice in the very low range of the bass, but a baritone. So someone who has an ability to waver back and forth, who is dynamic, rather than someone who's fixed and static. So once again, these voice types are are very pointed by the, by the composer to give a sense of how they are to be navigated on our dramatic stage. Today we have most of these singers now are sung with very large voices mainly because most of the, the instruments now as many of you know the, the pistons on the valve horns and the pistons on the trumpet well for precision of sound and much larger sound. The strings are no longer gut strings but rather steel strings and sort of define sort of a larger sound and so the singer also has to be much larger as well. So yeah, you know, there's, 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 there's um, um, a sense really I think with, with bel canto that uh, uh, once again you, you, you don't just think of it as a genre, but rather it's also a style, it's also a, a way that you use the characters and the voice types, so it's, 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 it's sort of a, it's, it's multifaceted, but at the end of the day it's about beautifully singing. It's about getting that voice to be heard in a way where you sort of have this transcends the voice. Remember this is the age of virtuosity. This is the age where people wanted to see spectacle. So the idea of this disembodied quality of seeing a body, but hearing this voice that is this character, this that we look to, to try to understand our world.
0: That was Guild lecturer, Dr. Mark Pottinger, discussing madness in Donizetti's Lucia de Lamamor. To learn more about Lucia de Lamamor and other operas that have mad scenes, Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on all your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and make sure to join us next week for part two of this fascinating topic. Thanks for listening.